Garden Basics with Farmer Fred is brought to you by Smart Pots, the original lightweight, long-lasting fabric plant container. It's made in the USA. Visit smartpots.com/fred for more information and a special discount. That's smartpots.com/fred. Welcome to the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. If you're just a beginning gardener or you want good gardening information, well, you've come to the right spot. Summertime and the living is uneasy if you live in an area prone to wildfires. And it's not just California. People throughout the United States who are living in rural areas or where the suburbs meet the wildland face danger from rapidly moving wildfires. Today we're talking how to prepare your landscape for such an event. It's called firescaping, and we'll talk with one of the nation's preeminent authorities on how to make your home and yard more resistant to flying, burning embers. The plant of the week is a very popular summertime bloomer throughout the country. It's the hydrangea. We have tips for growing this colorful, commonly found shrub. It's all on episode 115 of the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast, brought to you today by Smart Pots and Dave Wilson Nursery. We'll do it all in under 30 minutes. Let's go. About 4 million acres burned in California last year. That's more than any other year in modern history. In many ways, it was entirely predictable. The Sacramento Bee did an analysis that showed that most of the scorched land sits within what's called a very high fire hazard severity zone. Areas designated by Cal Fire scientists as highly vulnerable to major wildfires. And there is a pattern to these maps. The Sacramento Bee analysis shows that more than 2.7 million Californians live in very high fire hazard zones. About 350,000 live in towns and cities that sit completely or almost completely within these zones. Well, uh, the story is much the same in other communities that have burned in recent years and in interviews with homeowners who have been affected by these fires, it's not uncommon to hear, we know there's going to be another wildfire. We just pray it's not in our backyard. Well, the thing is, uh, you better do more than pray. And by the way, it isn't just California. The tragedy is uh, hardly a, a crazy California thing, according to my next guest. Conflagrations are consuming more live structures and acres throughout the United States. Arizona, Colorado, Florida, Idaho, Montana, Nevada, New Mexico, Oregon, Tennessee, Texas, Washington are setting records, and with a widespread drought, it's not going to get any better. And for that matter, it's overseas as well. We've seen the pictures of the wildfires in Australia, for example. We're talking with Douglas Kent. Doug Kent is the author of Firescaping, Protecting Your Home with a Fire-Resistant Landscape. Even though you do have plant lists, suggested plant lists, you point out that Maintenance is key. Maintenance, cleanup is very important to suppress fires. Basic housekeeping is essential, absolutely essential. It is the lack of our participation in the landscapes around our communities that welcome fire in. As you mentioned about the lack of maintenance that can just lead to such wholesale destruction, there is a great video on YouTube from the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety's Research Center, where they basically deliberately burned down a house. They had these ember fans blowing hot embers onto typical home construction and home landscaping. And part of the house was built with 
fire-resistant landscaping and fire-resistant materials. And it's just amazing the number of ways burning embers can enter your home through vents, through vinyl windows that melt, and talk about maintenance, gutters filled with debris. Yep. Yeah, you're exactly right. The gaps in garage doors uh, is a huge one. You know, in the Wolseley fire, um, what was that, 1,400 structures lost? Over 60% of those structures that were lost were burnt out by firebrands, not direct flame contact. And unofficial estimates say that 40% of those burnt from the inside out. Yeah. So that means that the firebrand penetrated the structure through the garage door, through an opening in the vent, through an open window, and ignited the, the structure from the inside out. Yeah, so really the structures are the place to start. Uh, if we want to create a, a, a fire-protected state or community. What was also amazing in this video was how quickly the mulch that surrounded the yeah. home caught mm -hmm. fire. A lot of people use mulch. I, I talk about using mulch uh, because it, it is good for your plants, but it's not good if you have it uh, piled up right next to your house, especially if you've got uh, tall plants that are growing up right next to your house as well. No, you're exactly right, Fred. Uh, Grace Slick, who lived in Marin County, lost her house um, to gorilla mulch. She had completely redone her landscape, spread gorilla mulch all over the place, and county workers were working down below her property, caused a spark, just raced up that mulch and consumed her house. You know, we have to be very cautious when we use mulch in fire country for sure. Yeah, gorilla mulch, also called gorilla hair, is the fine, thin hair bark that you might see at a, a garden center or a big box store. And yeah. if you're going to use mulch, it'd be better to use uh, large mulch, medium mulch, or small mulch, but try to avoid that uh, gorilla hair. So let's get into what you talk about in the book, Firescaping. And one of them is, it's sort of like playing basketball. You need to establish a zone defense. <laughs> yes, sir. Yeah, sorry. That was really a great analogy. <laughs> You're exactly right. You know, the uh, the zone theory actually came out of the L.A. Arboretum in the 1970s, and it was a response to California's first major urban fire. That was the Bel Air Fire of 1961. Federal and state funding had roared into L.A. County, and, and massive amounts of work was being created to help create these fire-protected communities. And out came from that was the zone theory. And it's just three concentric zones around any structure. So the first zone is zone one, from the structure to 30 feet. The job of that zone is to endure intense heat and endure firebrands. And those firebrands may be raining on that zone for days or weeks. Further out from 31 to 70 feet is the fuel break. And this is where an, a fire, a ground fire or a canopy fire, is absolutely put out. So it doesn't go any further than 70 feet to a structure. And then from 71 to 100 feet or 200 feet out, depending on where you live, is zone three. And that's really about fuel modification. We're reducing the intensity of the fire. So those are the three zones. Reduce the intensity of the fire, stop the fire, and then make sure that that structure can endure the effects of the fire. 
when people have been reading about uh, these zones, and there is a lot of literature about them, uh, they sometimes walk away with the impression that Zone 1 is nothing but uh, hardscaping. It's nothing but concrete. When in reality, uh, you, you could have a lawn. You can have anything. Japanese maples. You know, I've seen juniper survive a house fire just eight feet away. Anything that's well-maintained and loved and free of the fine, ignitable fuels is probably okay. It's really about the, the design and the massing. So if we have just this utter mass of plants, then your fire risk liability is going to increase. But if the landscape is open and broad and sweeping views, you are less likely to have that high risk. That's really about the design and the composition and the massing. And, and like you said before, about the maintenance is really the critical part. What I also found interesting, and you were talking about plants that are can offer some degree from wildfires. And you talked about the oleander, how in its early years, an oleander can suppress a fire. But as an oleander ages, it could actually turn into a liability. Right. And why is that? Well, just as anything ages, it becomes more brittle, less resilient, and it accumulates a lot of those fine materials and fine fuels inside of its canopy. So even the most fire-resistant plants, I've seen piles of ash. Every plant I've ever recommended, I think I've seen a pile of ash. <laughs> so it's really sometimes a little problematic to recommend any one plant. But I, I think one one good piece of advice, though, is, is don't have mulch right next to your house and don't have those uh, <laughs> those ladder plants right next to the house, too, where a fire can basically climb up the plant and get into your eaves. Well, oh, oh, sage advice right there. Yes. Really, you don't want anything remotely flammable within five feet of a structure. Nothing remotely flammable. If a fire starts next to a structure, you get this effect called compression and convection. And so out in the wild, a three-foot flame all of a sudden turns to six or seven or eight feet when it's right up against a vertical surface like a building because you get that compression of the radiant heat and then that rapid convection, which elongates the flames. So yes, no mulch up against the house, no woody material or, or even the more flammable plants like rosemary and, and cypress. Um, anything with a dense, twiggy interior would never be recommended. That that would be like a um, a hedge. Any of those would not be recommended. No, you nailed it right there, Fred. Well, when you said sage advice, I'm thinking I wouldn't plant a sage either because no. It, it, <laughs> no. it, it is so aromatic. And you point out in your yeah. book that the aromatic plants contain a lot of oils and that yep. that can add flame to the fire. Yeah, but if we had plants like maybe like coral bells or agapanthus, daylilies, there's so many neat plants. Uh, Japanese maples would be ideal in that first zone or even close to a structure. Succulents, you know, um, the sedum and the agaves would all be wonderful. And let's talk about uh, some of the things that people have near their house that maybe they should think twice about. When I lived in the country, a lot of people liked to line their driveways with trees on either side, and they were usually... Uh, usually fast-growing trees, and fast-growing trees usually aren't your best quality trees. But if you stop and think about it, well, wait a minute. If the driveway catches fire and those trees catch fire, how is the fire department going to get to the house? Well, they're not. They're not. Yeah, they're not going to risk their life for a property that's poorly maintained. 
Yeah, and uh, you know they they can spot that a mile away. And that yeah. is something else that that that's kind of sad. There hasn't been, as you point out in your book, that much enforcement of of cleanup of mitigating these possible issues. Right. Well, you know, part of that is the personality the fire departments attract. They don't attract people interested in compliance. Those people go to police work. So you're trying to get the fire departments to do a a policing job, and it really kind of goes against the grain of their personality. So I think it's a structural issue. Um, I think it's a job they don't want. Um, You know, they don't want to be the bad guy in the neighborhood. Fred, I'm going to back up. You know, compliance with state fire code ranges from 8% to 30% throughout California. Actually, a fire-safe property is more of an exception than a rule. And so you really need enforcement when compliance is so low. Well, there is some problems, though. You know, California is second in the nation in levels of renters. So we have an incredible high population that rents. And you're going to find that. That was the Paradise Fire. Most of the structures destroyed were rentals. We saw a lot of rentals get destroyed in the Tubbs Fire. The managers of these rentals are are not as invested in the safety and the, and the well-being of their community and the neighbors. Because really, when you do a fire safe property, you're not just protecting your family and your valuables, you're protecting everybody around you. And you know, if you're just a renter or you're a landlord, you're less likely to feel attached to your neighbors or your community. And I think that plays a role too in our level of housekeeping in fire country. One thing I learned from your book, and this will be reassuring to gardeners, is that food crops, your garden area, is can survive fire brands and intense heat. And food is phenomenal. Food has been saving Californians for hundreds of years. Not one California mission was ever destroyed by a wildfire. The only mission ever destroyed by a fire was a an uprising, and that was San Diego. No, the, the missionaries had it right. You can see it in their architecture. And you can see it on their use of their land. Immediately around the structures, their churches would have been food crops, would have been husbandry, animal husbandry, would have been tanning. And all the uses in that high use around the outside of their structures would have created a low degree of flammability and ignitability. Yeah, I guess really the problem with some garden features, even in a food garden, would be the structures around it, the uh, play structures, shade structures, storage sheds. The wood pile, maybe we better think about uh, constructing uh, raised beds out of metal instead of uh, wood. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a good idea. Actually, I don't know if raised beds are such a risk because um, they absorb the soil moisture. So they, they usually have a higher water content than wood that's just been laying out. But no, structures pose a disproportional risk. So shade structures, playhouses, um, even RVs are notorious fire starter. Mm. Yeah, once an RV gets going, they'll produce incredible amounts of heat and exceptionally tough to extinguish. Well, that brings up a really good question then, and this would affect a lot more homeowners. Where should a homeowner, if they think they are in a wildfire area, and my heavens, that thought is expanding to more and more areas, Yeah. but mm-hmm. where where do you put the wood pile, where do you park the RV? How far away from the home should those be? Well, the wood, the wood pile should be at least 10 feet off the house, no doubt about it. A fire professional would always recommend 30 feet, but no less than 10 feet. And the RV can be maintained so it just doesn't catch the fire brand. So if you sweep underneath it, 
You make sure no fine debris is accumulating in the tire wells or in the gutters or on the roof, then you should be fine. Firebrands will just hit the RV and bounce off. How about fuel tanks? What propane tanks, for example, how far should those be away from a home? Oh, okay. So those, I think, um, state law requires, I think, 60 feet from a structure and that they themselves need at least 20 feet of defensible space around them and five feet of non-flammable material like gravel immediately around them. Well, that will come as a surprise to most people who have a lot of junk usually piled up by the propane tank. Yes, common in fire country to see the propane tank being used as storage. So there's all kinds of stuff leaning on it, Mm -hmm. hanging around it. Yeah, it's tragic. Oh, and weeds too. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, state law requires all those wild weeds to be mowed down to four inches around um, natural gas tanks or propane tanks, and and that's a rarity. And if you've ever heard one of those explode, they are bone-shattering. Well, I I think in summary, we should point out that uh, in all zones, removing dead, diseased, and damaged vegetation is the most important use of your time spent uh, in maintenance. Fred, you nailed it. If I could tell your audience anything, it would be get rid of those fine fuels. Just make sure that your landscape and your house can survive that firebrand attack. And it all comes down to those fine fuels. Is there anything for a firebrand to ignite in your gutter, next to your door, out in the landscape? So, yes, remove that dead, dying, and diseased vegetation. That's our number one task. There are a lot of good tips we don't have time to go into uh, here in the book, Firescaping, Protecting Your Home with a Fire-Resistant Landscape. And it includes things like uh, maybe how to better protect your home with roof sprinklers or generators or putting your swimming pool to use for for good, Uh, dealing with slopes, having an evacuation route, and, and so much more that's in this book, Firescaping, Protecting Your Home with a Fire-Resistant Landscape by Douglas Kent. Doug, thanks for all the good tips. Is there anything you want to add to this? I would just like to add that I am super grateful to be on a gardening program. I think gardeners are divine. Our impact on our communities is fantastic. And I would just love to do anything to encourage you and your your listeners to continue to garden joyfully. It's just a wonderful, divine pursuit. And gardeners are the nicest people, too. They are. Indeed, they are. All right. Douglas Kent, he's author of the book, Firescaping, Protect Your Home with a Fire-Resistant Landscape. If you know people who, who live in that urban wildland interface and you've visited their homes and you think, oh, my goodness, what's going to happen here if a fire breaks out? Let them know about this podcast. Have them give it a listen and then pick up a copy of Douglas Kent's book, Firescaping. Doug, thanks so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Oh, Fred, you are a delight. Thank you very much for having me on your show. We're glad to have Smart Pots on board supporting the Garden Basics podcast. Smart Pots are the original award-winning fabric planter. They're sold worldwide. Smart Pots are proudly made 100% in the USA. I'm pretty picky about who I allow to advertise on this program. My criteria, though, is, is pretty simple. It has to be a product I like, a product I use, a product I would buy again. 
and Smart Pots clicks all those boxes. They're durable, they're reusable. Smart Pots are available at independent garden centers and select Ace and True Value stores nationwide. To find a store near you, visit smartpots.com/fred. It's Smart Pots, the original award-winning fabric planter. Go to smartpots.com/fred for more info and that special Farmer Fred discount on your next Smart Pot purchase. Go to smartpots.com slash Fred. We like to answer your garden questions here on the Garden Basics podcast, and we want to hear your voice, too. So please leave an audio question, and you can do that without making a phone call. Do it via SpeakPipe at speakpipe.com slash Garden Basics. It's easy. Give it a try. You can call and leave a question via the telephone as well at 916-292-8964. 916-292-8964. And you can also use that number to text us questions, maybe a picture of the problematic plant. So here's a little incentive to either leave a voice message at speakpipe.com slash garden basics or call and leave a question at 916-292-8964. If we use your audio question on any episode during the month of July, you will get, courtesy of the great folks at SmartPots, a free SmartPots six-foot-long raised bed fabric planter. Also known as the SmartPot Long Bed, it's rectangular in shape, it has built-in partitions, 16 inches wide, 16 inches tall, 6 feet long. It holds over 10 and a half cubic feet of soil. So again, call us with your garden question, 916-292-8964, or go to speakpipe.com slash gardenbasics. That's one word, garden basics. And you can record your question there online. And if we use your question during the month of July on the Garden Basics podcast, you're getting a free Smart Pot raised bed planter. By the way, be sure to tell us in your message where you live so we can get a better answer to your garden question, because as I'm very fond of saying, all gardening is local. So come on, join in the garden fun here on the Garden Basics Podcast. You have a small yard and you think you don't have the room for fruit trees? Well, maybe you better think again, because Dave Wilson Nursery wants to show you how to grow great tasting fruits peaches, apples, pluots, and a lot more in small areas. You could even grow them in containers on patios as well. It's called Backyard Orchard Culture, and you can get step-by-step -step information via the fruit tube videos at DaveWilson.com. And that's where you're going to find the closest nursery to you that carries Dave Wilson's quality fruit trees. So start the Backyard Orchard of your dreams at DaveWilson.com. Here on the Garden Basics Podcast, we like to get the plant of the week from the Superintendent Emeritus of the UC Davis Arboretum and Public Garden. He's Warren Roberts. He always gives us an interesting plant to consider for our garden. Warren, as summer takes hold, there is, I can think of several reliable bloomers for summertime and and one that is just absolutely gorgeous and it's a it's a drive-by show. You can be going 35 miles an hour, and you're going to spot this plant. It's the hydrangea. That's right, the hydrangea. We have a number of species, of course, all the way from they they range all the way from the Himalayas to Japan. The there's also of course there are also some in the Americas, Mexico, and eastern North America. So it's fairly widespread. It's a woody plant, usually a small shrub, but there are also some vines. 
But the main one that we grow and that we see in florist shops is hydrangea macrophylla, uh, sometimes called Japanese hydrangea. One word of warning on there, the word hydrangea, the first two syllables indicate water. This is not a plant for a dry garden. <laughs> but if you have, like I do, a piece of shade where you know, it gets no direct sunlight and a little bit of moisture, I water mine about once, soak it about once a month, uh, I have a good show. Hmm. But it's, I only have one. <laughs> oh, okay. Yes. Hydrangeas prefer an acidic soil, don't they? And when the soil is alkaline, the flowers are often pink. Mm. There are, though, some dependable blue ones. I mean, you see these gorgeous pure blue hydrangeas. A Nikko blue is one, N-I-K-K-O blue. This leads me to uh, the, the um, uh, idea of the red, white, and blue garden. <laughs> uh, there are other hydrangeas, like hydrangea, macro, uh, hydrangea quercifolia, which is native to the eastern U.S., Perfectly cold hardy, I think most of the most of the country, and that has white flowers. Hmm. So you could have anyway, starting out with the blue and the white. Uh, there's there are other hydrangeas. Hydrangea arborescens has a white flower, is a white flower species from the eastern woodlands. And what I was thinking, what I was getting at, is getting red, white, and blue for Fourth of July. And there are lots of plants that have white flowers. Lots of plants that have red flowers. I'm talking about pure white, pure red. But pure blue is really hard to come by. Uh, well, anyway, hydrangea macrophylla nico blue would be one. And some others would be like agapanthus, which kind of looks like fireworks, although it's not a pure blue. It's a darker blue when it's really look blue, though. Serratostigma wilmatianum. That's a good, uh, tough plant with pure blue flowers and a lower species called Serratostigma plumbaginoides, uh, which uh, also has pure blue flowers. Now, uh, the um, plumbago itself, we don't have really pure blue. We have a very bright uh, sky blue, but just plain pure blue, not yet. Most, most of the time when you see blue flowers, they're violet blue. Mm, but, yeah, that's true, uh, like, like the ageratum. Yes. Now, Lobelia arinus, which is the common Lobelia, there are some forms that are almost pure blue. There's a Veronica, Veronica spicata, which has some cultivars that are. And there's some salvias, like salvia farinacea, salvia patens, salvia azuria, variety grandiflora, salvia chamedrioides. These do have pure blue flowers. Uh, not, <laughs> some of these are not very cold hardy, but at least they have blue flowers, and you could put them in as an annual if you have colder weather. White flowers, oh gee, roses, prey myrtles, uh, oleander, hibiscus mosheatus, uh, the huge uh, herbaceous hibiscus are white flowered forms. There is, I didn't know that. There's a white flowered form, huh? Well, yes, there is, yeah. And uh, and also, uh, some people say this is the national flower, the chasta, chasta daisy, uh, Leucanthemum suburb, hybrid suburban. That has, of course, has white flowers. Red, oh, that's easy. Red roses, uh, the red verbenas, the the nice dark red form, new forms of crape myrtle. Uh, oleander has some good strong red flowers. Hibiscus mosheotis, which we mentioned earlier, there are pure red forms, of course. This is a hibiscus that has flowers that are as big as uh, dessert plates. Uh, campsus, the uh, trumpet vines. There is a campsus hybrid called Taglia buana, which is a hybrid, and it, I call it for a crim, crimson trumpet, is pure red. 
And of course, Campsus radicans comes in other colors like flavor, which is yellow. And then the Chinese species, which is the other parrot of that hybrid I mentioned, uh, Campsus grandiflora. But the only one that has really, truly red flowers would be the one I mentioned. Campsus hybrid Taglia buona crimson trumpet. Now, when you plant Campsus, oh, don't plant it on a house. It'll take the house apart. Yes, it will. <laughs> I've seen beautiful examples. If Maybe you've seen that one. Uh, uh, Fred in in Sacramento was it's an abandoned telephone pole that somebody planted a trumpet vine on. Yes, and it became a it became a tree. <laughs> yes, the campsus tree. <laughs> the campsus tree, and it's has kind of a, a rounded crown. It, it can only go up so far that it branches out. It only holds itself out so far. So, if for a, a tree for a narrow sunny space, put in a a, a, a very sturdy pole, and then plant a trumpet vine on it, and then you've got yourself a tree. Well, there we and go. And then you don't, <laughs> and then you don't have it doing uh, property damage like it would want to do. And the good thing about uh, the Campsus radicans, the common trumpet creeper, you can grow that in just about any place in the country. Oh yeah, keep in mind it loses its leaves in the winter, but as soon as spring comes, it's ready to go to take over. <laughs> well, we started off with hydrangeas. We ended up with a trumpet vine. Go figure. That's okay. I love the scenic bypasses. Warren Roberts is with the UC Davis Arboretum and Public Garden. The Arboretum is open and it's free. If you're ever in the Davis area, go visit it. It's a gorgeous facility. And you can find out more information about the UC Davis Arboretum online at arboretum.ucdavis.edu. Warren, thanks for the plant of the week. I think there were several there. Well, I was trying to do the red, white, and blue, too. So. <laughs> You're welcome. Garden Basics comes out every Tuesday and Friday. It's brought to you by Smart Pots. Garden Basics is available wherever podcasts are handed out, and that includes Apple, iHeart, Stitcher, Spotify, Overcast, Google, Podcast Addict, CastBox, and Pocket Casts. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and leaving comments. We appreciate it.